In these uncertain times, it can be hard to make sense of everything that is happening across the world today. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate, to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at theregistrysf.com in San Francisco and theregistryps.com in Seattle. Rob Zirkel is the founding principal at Brick, an Oakland, California-based architecture firm that describes itself as friendly, unconventional can-do architects. Rob brings a strong record of successful and recognized design excellence to a wide variety of project types in both architecture, interiors, and urban design. Having studied under noted Pritzker Prize-winning architect Glenn Murcutt, Rob brings a sensitivity of the details of design that make memorable architecture transcend the everyday. Through the benefit of two prestigious traveling fellowships in architecture, Rob's extensive travels bring a well-rounded global perspective to how urban design and architecture shape our city spaces of social and cultural exchange. Welcome, Rob. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything with an easy reach, whether it's world-class restaurants, theater, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among other industry leaders and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result? An unbeatable combination that leads to success. And that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at www.hacienda.org. Rob, good afternoon. How are you? Vladimir, I'm doing great. How are you? I am well. Where does this podcast find you today on a Friday afternoon? Um, I'm at home in my Zoom dungeon. <laughs> okay. Is that is that an official term? <laughs> Do you have a sign by the door that calls it that? <laughs> yes. Uh, the, it, it's an official title. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm thankful for it. It's nice to have a place to be able to plug in and do this. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all trying to find or repurpose spaces within the house, right? So anyway, um, so Rob, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I I wanted to, uh, just for the benefit of our, of our audience, get a little bit of an introduction into, into you and your firm. Tell us a little, a little bit about your background, what your firm does, where you're located, um, and then, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, that sounds great. So I uh, opened the firm in October of 2010. So we're approaching our 10-year anniversary here pretty soon, actually. It was maybe a little bit of a crazy thing to do to quit a perfectly lovely job as a principal with a great firm, Steinberg Hart. I was in their San Francisco office. And I uh, just, you know, felt really, you know, motivated to want to follow my own passions and, uh, you know, develop a practice that was based 
you know, more on the way that I wanted to work and the kinds of projects I wanted to do, uh, particularly at that time. And in spite of all of the economic uncertainty at that time, it seemed like jumping off a cliff into the ocean just to learn if I could swim was, was a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so I, so I convinced my wife that this was a good idea. And I don't, I don't know if she was just humoring me when she said yes, but, um, anyway, she was behind me full scheme. And, and so, October 1st of 2010 was day one at my dining room table. And now we're 24 people, which I'm very pr- proud of. A great, great team, a very diverse team. And we work on all kinds of different projects all over the Bay Area together, which is great. We're headquartered in downtown Oakland and thrilled to look back in 10 years and wonder how it went by so fast. But just look at all of the great opportunities we've had to work with great clients yeah. and communities all over the Bay. Yeah, awesome. yeah, absolutely. And as of fellow entrepreneur, I, I can appreciate, you know, the willingness to go work for yourself, but for an architect, what, what drove you to sort of consider one, that that was the right time, but two, also to sort of venture into, into your own, um, is it based on, you know, your personality? Was it based on something that you wanted to do that was different? Uh, tell us kind of how your thought process worked around that. Well, I, I think in some respects, um, when you, I mean, we, we might even see that in the time that we're in now. When you're in a period of disruption like this, like we were then, I think, that, and if you looked at the economic models, that was pretty much the bottom of the curve. I think that the way that I looked at it was is that if, if I wanted to, and I think often lots of architects feel very passionate and strong about the kind of practice and business they want to be in, but there's sure. lots of obstacles in the the business end of practicing architecture that make it really hard to take a leap of faith and, um, you know, absent a trust fund, it's, it's, it can be kind of a dicey and tough way to, you know, make a living for a while. Yes. And um, <laughs> so it, it inhibits a lot of people. And I looked at it like if, if it was as, if it was really at the bottom, like it seemed it was, then the economic cycle was only going to improve. And I thankfully had had, you know, a few years under my belt by that point in developing a network of, you know, kind of co-conspirators and commercial real estate, you know, some of whom were analysts, brokers, development managers. I knew that they were going to turn into, you know, deal principals at some point. Yeah. And so I kind of thought, well, this is the time to start investing my time and energy and social capital, real estate capital, I mean, relationship capital, I should say, and, and, and see if I can make a go of it because it seemed like there was only one way to go, which was up. And, right. um, I thought that the worst thing that could happen is, is that it didn't work out. And, uh, you know, I, I just go find another job. Uh, <laughs> right. But th- thankfully it worked. <laughs> right. Right. So, so tell me a little bit about, okay, so you're, you're at your desk, um, you know, looking at kind of like, okay, we're, we're, you know, we're in this, uh, this is now for real. Um, how, how did you define, you know, what, you know, your company did and how did you define sort of the services? And, and also let's kind of take maybe a little bit of a path over the last 10 years. Um, did those plans pan out and kind of what are some of the projects that you're most, most proud of? Yeah, no, I, um, it was a curious time in 2010 and in, in events leading up to 2010. If I could summarize it in, you know, a really sort of, brief way, there was a real establishment of already successful. And remember, at that time, I was 39. You know, I'm 50 in a few months, but, you know, I was I was younger then. And, and at that time, 
there was a little more of an establishment in commercial real estate. There generally were, you know, people my age and older that kind of controlled deal flow, controlled investment. And, and what I saw was, is that people in my age range and a little younger were sort of in this time where, you know, how are we going to manufacture a career in commercial development, commercial real estate, um, my case, design and architecture, which is intertwined with, with CRE and, and my network in CRE at the time. And I just kind of felt like there had to be a way that we could innovate and work together to create opportunities. And so essentially what I did is I identified, you know, 10 or 12 people that were, you know, again, on the younger end of the spectrum at that time who were willing to take a flyer and evaluate a property to see if there was a deal to be had and, and work really hard and diligently to look out of the normal sort of, uh, kind of course of investment capital on the development side anyway, to see if there could be deals that, uh, could get done. And so I just sort of committed to do my part to support those pursuits look for ways to maximize those pursuits to increase the likelihood that together as a team, we could move projects forward. And that uh, really basically is what panned out for me. Now, those 10 or 12 people, mostly I work for uh, over this 10 years. And a few few of them have gone on to um, other things and we haven't worked together in a long time. And, uh, but, but the thesis was somewhat true in the sense that we were having to create and innovate in ways that the, that the, the then current kind of framework didn't really, you know, foster or promote as much. And so um, some of my, you know, key relationships in those days have gone on to be really great friendships and really great working relationships. Dan Minkoff at the Minkoff Group, who I've developed a number of projects with. Yeah. Um, Steve Walmark, then of SKS, uh, Murray Hill Partners currently, Scott Stafford, Strata Investment Group, and a number of others uh, who are occasional clients and good friends, you know, really helped get me off the ground and I, and, and played some role in helping, helping them also get off the ground. And so it's been a great, you know, kind of exchange of, you know, just ideas and initiatives and, 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 and a little bit of overtime and some sweat and some toil to, to get there. But it, it, that's, that's sort of how it paid off. Um, right and how it evolved. Right. So tell us about some of your no, most notable projects, ones that you're proud of, and sort of helped define, you know, your firm and what what you guys do. Sure. Well, one of the things that I've tried to do in my career, knowing that when I got started, I always wanted to have have a firm that I, you know, I either owned or was you know, a, a partner in, in moving forward, I always try to pay attention to how firms did not only the work that we do as designers and architects, the processes and procedures that, you know, help kind of expand creativity and create uh, great solutions to architectural and design problems. But, you know, I also really was, you know, very uh, observant of how the businesses ran and, and, and what made a successful architectural practice successful over the long term. And that's really the, the diversity of project types that you take on yeah, and the multiple markets and revenue streams that those create. It helps keep a nice flat line over time as opposed to big spikes if you're really concentrated in, in singular markets. And so I guess the best way for me to answer your question is the three markets we work in is commercial office and workplace, 
housing, and I'll just use that term broadly. That's mostly, you know, commercial development focused, multifamily housing yep. um, and variants in there, uh, occasionally single family residences, but mostly mostly commercial development based housing and then housing, uh, not housing, sorry, uh, projects for higher education. So in the commercial office space, I think that the, the, the one of the projects that people know us for a lot, mostly because of its, you know, it's kind of nicely positioned place um, off the Calac corridor in Palo Alto is 385 Sherman. That, that's a, that's a uh, project that Visa um, leases the entire building on. Uh, that was a project that I designed for uh, the Minkoff Group. And um, a lot of people know that project because it helped complete a really nice sort of neighborhood park, um, Sarah Wallace Park, that helped kind of create a beautiful residential edge around the property, but also kind of infilled, you know, kind of a site that needed some help. Yeah. And, and it also sold for an incredible amount of money. And I, and I think that there is a big part of that, the location and, and, and an amazing lease signed by Visa. But the way we looked at the design in that project was to really use a mixed-use project, even in a small site like that, to maximize the qualities of the urban landscape, maximize the qualities of what the spaces on the interior of the building were like, so that the neighborhood levered up, the, the park was improved flavor and grain of the residential neighborhood that surround the park was was improved but it also had the right balance and the right kind of commercial office to be really attractive to a great company like visa and so i think one of the reasons why that project did did so well once it was marketed was um be because of all of these things working together to create this sort of notion of value and that's something that's important in all of our all of our jobs and all of our thinking and and then on the housing side you know we've done a handful of different kinds of projects market rate apartments housing for seniors co-living projects affordable housing you know, lots of different types of multifamily housing Baxter on Broadway is a, a market rate apartment development rental yeah. um, it's in Oakland at 51st and Broadway that was a project that was very early in the cycle I did that with Ryan Leong um, and Jim Rivard um, of SRN development based out of Spokane, yep. uh, Washington. And Ryan and I had worked together a handful of times from uh, my previous life and it's time for a cart. That project really was at a nexus that was really interesting at the at that intersection, there's really four different, you know, very distinct neighborhoods and in and also a different city, right? It's it's Piedmont, it's uh, the Grove Shafter neighborhood, it's Rockridge and it's Hemiscal. All of them occur at that intersection. Yeah. So there is there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know effect that development at that intersection has, and, and our particular project was on the Temescal side of that intersection, but also border Rockridge and and Grove Chapter, and and so there there was a there was a there was a high level of interest from the community on that project, and and because of the topography, the time frame from which SRM initially purchased the property, um, which was early in the cycle, so no one understood what rents were going to be like. Um, we had to be really, you know, inventive in terms of maximizing the development potential, but also leaving a positive imprint on the community members. So it was really a, you know, a two-year, six-community meeting endeavor to make sure that we could develop something that was beneficial to the yeah, neighborhood yeah. and supportive to the people who were there, but also, you know, gave a great product to SRM. And that project, you might know, transacted recently at 
somewhere around six hundred and thirty thousand dollars a door, which you know in the East Bay is a a pretty lofty number. Yeah, and again, sizable, yep. I think I think that that's I think that that in 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 part is somewhat like the three eighty five Sherman discussion where the urban design, the architecture, the way that it, it contextualizes itself into the neighborhood, the spaces that are created all contribute to this idea of creating value and trying to find something that's a, you know, maybe a, a, a not out of the box conventional way to approach the development, but was the right way to approach it. And, and it was the right thing for SRM for sure in the end. And on our institutional work front, um, you know, we do work for community college districts, cities, counties, um, things like that. We really like a part of our portfolio being focused on public projects, civic focused projects. Yep. And the work that we've done with the Marin County Community College District at both of their campuses, at the Indian Valley College campus in Nevada, but, but also Kenfield, you know, is a really interesting exercise over several projects that we've done for them over the years, whereby we had to find a way, particularly the Indian Valley College campus, which was built in a very kind of uh, distinct fashion and style of architecture at a particular period of time. As many community college campuses are, this one has a beautiful natural setting, uh, you know, a really kind of natural influence on the older stock of buildings. But over time, many new buildings had been built there and it, and it some fit better than others. Our charge was to help sort of bring some continuity through the work that we were doing yeah. there. And yeah. again, this, the, the way of, of thinking about this idea of how multiple influences and constituencies in a, in a campus setting like that really can help bring things to life is really important. And one project that we did there that people really like a lot is a joint use facility between the um, local Rotary, Rotary Club of Novato and the campus. It's a shared use building. It's a banquet facility and meeting space. And we had a number of different influences and a limited budget and two clients to contend with. And it was really the process of really thinking about how each of the clients, each of the influences on the projects created opportunities to create things that were going to be meaningful to both of them that they may not have even thought about when they got together. And, and that's, that feels like magic when you can make that happen as an architect. So yeah, yeah, you you've hinted at this um, a few times during during this sort of overview of what you do, and I think you brought up the word value a couple of times. And you know, as a I'm I'm you know trained as a marketer, I suppose uh, that's one of those things that you know is kind of instilled in your head, right? As a as a business person, you know, you're always trying to not just you know provide a service or a product, but create something that's of value that you know the other side will really um, appreciate and and that would also you know create uh, value for them as well. And it sounds like when you mentioned you know, a couple of those projects, the one that V's occupied and the one in Oakland um, or in Piedmont that, that you know, transacted recently. It was the sort of, you know, visual aspect of those projects that, 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 that also helped and, you know, make it what it is. As you were, you know, starting your business and coming into your own, you know, was this notion of kind of value always there or was this something that evolved with uh, your work over time? And, you know, is this now basically the kind of one of the primary, you know, maybe the backbone of, of what, uh, you know, Brick does? It's, it's a core part of the firm's uh, DNA. Um, everyone that works in the organization together has a, has a belief that, 
architecture design matters. And sometimes architecture exists in the crosshairs of, of, of a transactional mentality or, you know, kind of a commodity. Sure. And, and even in the best of cases, it's, it's somewhat like that. But w- what we try to, to do is keep the, the meaning and the power of architecture at, 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 the, at the forefront of our thinking and use our passions and use design as a way to mediate all of the influences that come together on a project. Now, as it relates to this creation of value, I mean, you can look at that over different perspectives. You know, for a commercial development client, I think that the idea of value is somewhat straightforward. It's also tactical in business if you're an architect and want to work in commercial development. If you can help your clients differentiate what they're building and, and either want to lease or sell, you know, that's, that's a good reason for them to want to come back to you. And, and over the years, 80, 80% of our business year over year is repeat business. And we take on a few clients every year or two, um, on, under these same kind of principles. And that's what's helped us be able to grow the business and get a chance to practice in a way that we think, you know, not only is what we want to do, but also we, you know, we think helps the places where we're building these buildings and, and make them, you know, make them better, lever them up. And then value for the people who are, in the space and using it, whether that's where you work or whether that's where you study or whether that's where you live, you know, for, for example, in the community college space, all of the studies on student engagement, you know, show a really strong correlation to successful student outcomes yeah. based upon the amount of time they stay on campus. Right. And so, and in that sense, value is, okay, well, what is it that you're programming into the architecture or the space that you're working on or in or around that inspires those students to want to stay around, lead to success. So that's one idea of value. And then if you're a community member, especially in an urban infill setting, you know, you just, you just want your street to be better. You want your life to be better. You want to be able to feel better when you're going out into your neighborhood or make the shopping experience better, or maybe the traffic is a little bit better than it was moving in and around. And so there's this sort of idea of, of engagement with the community stakeholders too, that, has a way of measuring the value that increases their experience of place. And so this is something that's a really core belief of ours is just looking for those places for all of the stakeholders that are involved, including us and, and, and finding, finding what the spirit of what somebody really wants to see and how it can happen and bringing that through design out into the architecture. And that's what creates the crazy sales prices. And that's what creates the great rents. And that's what creates the desire. And it's what keeps, you know, our clients coming back to us. And it allows us that when we're all said and done, we feel like we've left a positive imprint on the built environment. And, and, and that feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. As you look at the next decade of, you know, the evolution of your firm and what you guys do and how you do it, uh, how do you think that will evolve? And, you know, I think you and I talked about this a little bit before our call, but, you know, there's this, you know, cliche of, you know, ever-changing kind of, uh, you know, architecture as a as a profession with more technology entering into the space and things like that. But how how do you envision, um, you know, that no, no, notion of, you know, creating value and sort of creating something that, that will be, uh, you know, transcendent throughout, throughout time um, in, in in your work? Um, well, that's a great question because we find ourselves at a crazy time right now. All of us do. Yeah. Um, and, and our businesses, our, our families and everything, you know, the, 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 the way that I hope that our firm 
continues to evolve through this next 10 years and the way I would like to lead it towards that conclusion is continuing to focus on the things that really can make a positive impact on people. And those things, you know, may evolve and change the kinds of spaces that we design and the kind of workplaces that we design may be different than they were, but humans still need contact. They still need to be together. And in this, the, the pandemic that's affecting all of us is going to create some interesting change in sort of how we think about that. That's going to have really strong uh, uh, effects in, in financing and the development of commercial real estate for sure. And so keeping a laser focus on, on how those sort of changing modes of intensity, density, location, transit access, among others can can help create a positive imprint yeah. imprint for people is is really the thing that I think will help distinguish you know us and how we can sustain in the next ten years. Does any of that change, given sort of today's environment and the you know global pandemic, the, does it alter any of those thoughts in terms of what that value brings? I think so. I think so. I think that there's there's a certain I think there's a certain uh, uh, primacy of speed that is going to shift here a little bit in, in the sense that leading up to all this, everything felt like it was moving a million miles an yeah. hour, yeah. bigger, more dense, more compressed, get more in less time. This is a mentality that we have, particularly here in the Silicon Valley and in, in the Bay Area, where I think that that pace really had a big effect on traffic, transit, the density of spaces that we were building. There was economic derivatives of that too, you know, 135 square feet per person in an office environment is somewhat a result of all of those forces. These open office environments have a certain kind of financial um, underpinning as much as they have a kind of creative and sort of social underpinning too. And and those are going to change, right? Um, And they're going to change partly because of in the short term, before there's more pronounced treatment options or vaccines for COVID, there's also going to be this need to want to keep the slowness, the connectivity, the authenticity of communication and social relationships and working relationships that just, you know, might mean that it's not as dense and it's not as fast. Will there still be a need for a big real estate footprint in Silicon Valley? I think so. I mean, this is still a, this is still a, a, a beacon of the world for innovation. And, and in some respects, if you de-densify offices, so there's fewer people in them, you know, and, and go back to, uh, in the, in the case of offices to, you know, to you know, 200 square foot per person, 220 square foot per person. Well, you know, even if half the, even if half the workforce is remote, there's, yeah. we still only have enough for the remaining half to be in, in the office. So I think it's just that the nature of space is going to change a little bit. And I think that the sort of primacy on where value is created is going to change a little bit, but I don't think that that concept goes away. Yeah. I, I think you're, I think you're very, uh, you know, correct there as you, one of the things that I've heard about how this uh, pandemic is affecting the economy and just other uh, industries in general is that it's sort of really fast forwarding us into into something that you know if we thought we were going to be there ten years from now we're going to be there probably in eighteen months or so right as you look at architecture how how do you what what did you think architecture was going to look like in ten years and now you think it's probably going to look like in twelve to eighteen months 
is there is there is there such a concept in architecture? I don't know. I'm I'm you know curious to see what what you have to you know say about that. Well, there's a, I mean so there's, some, there's a lot unknown there, obviously. Of course, um, yeah. I'll say I'll say one thing that is there's a, there's a difference in a distributed. There's many parts to your question, but the first and obvious thing is, can you practice architecture in a distributed workforce? And the answer is mostly yes. I will also say, though, that we have a number of projects right now that are in technical delivery, and some of these are are pretty large. And the tasks in in the technical delivery of of drawings are, are pretty defined. You can you can really focus in pretty clearly on what needs to be done and when and who's going to do it and how it's going to get it done and meeting by Zoom and virtual whiteboards are are pretty effective, you know. But in the front end of projects where you need to whiteboard and you need to explore and you need to invent and create, that's a, Zoom creates some obstacles there, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it, it's not it's 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 pretty it's pretty good for what it does. But it doesn't. It's not the same as being in a studio environment. So I think, in terms of like, how does the sort of nature of what an architecture studio and architecture office look like over time is like, is it going to be a fully distributed workforce in ten years? I don't think so. It, it, but but I wasn't necessarily focusing on that. It was more just sort of the function of how it's being performed and what the delivery is and how that how that delivery is being presented right and it's 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 less about the distribution of work and and more about just you know in general how how their work is done if that makes sense yeah um well technology has been great for uh, architecture in terms of productivity the amount that we can produce for the people that we have as an industry to do it is you know multiplied many times over yeah. um from when i even got started in the profession dating myself to admit that my first jobs were drawing by hand and we we don't we don't really spend a lot of time doing that anymore right, uh, unless right. it's for fun mostly and so the t- technology will continue to evolve to allow more power it will but that with that with that uh, production power and its connectivity to understanding construction means method sequencing it means that architects will continue to need to have a great dialogue with builders right to understand how the the sort of the ultimate delivery of of what we're creating as designers will get produced and reflected in the models that we build uh we will evolve uh for sure towards a paperless future in in how we how we build buildings how we review code how plan checkers look at ours and it won't happen overnight but there's so much power in the technology to be able to support that work that it, it will definitely look that way. And then on the visualization side, virtual reality will continue to take hold. We use virtual reality for client presentations, sure. visualizations in our firm, but also just for us, you know, we have eyes too and we have senses sure. too. And we like to we like to see we like to see it through that just to make sure that what we're exploring is working and and and, and can be improved along the way. So it's practical and it's also sort of you know, presentation focus too. Those things will allow more uh, more power in the creative act, continuing so, and also more power in the 
technical delivery of what we do as well. Yeah, and and you you just brought up something that I think was um, kind of where where I was going with that with that question, which is you know working with general contractors, working with developers, right? Over the last decade, if I've heard anything, I've I've heard how those lines were kind of blurring more and more, right? And everybody was sort of being, you know, proud of their ability to kind of bring in the architect earlier in the project or bring in a contractor earlier in the project, right? So they're all kind of working hand in hand. And I'm just wondering if that overall changes, right? If if uh, if it, or not necessarily changes, but if it, if it uh, fast forwards to something where uh, it's, it's coupled even, even more, right? Um, no, I think you're seeing that already. Um, and it's, it's super rare, it's super rare in the private sector space and in public contracting laws a little bit different. So there are certain, there are certain abilities to do that early on in the process with both a contractor and an architect, you know, through design build is one example, but those, I, I don't know the last time we did a design build package and for a private sector client, I mean, it, it hasn't happened in, I don't know, at least a decade or more right. than in, in my memory, we've never done it in my company. Um, and that's because the the collaborative nature of what it takes to get a building built, and that's all parties. That's not just the architect and the contractor. I mean, it's all the design professionals that are part of that process. You know, both on the consultant side, like an architect, but also on the design build side, like on on the, the general contracting side. Clients are often more sophisticated and participatory in that process, and for sure the overlap and connectivity between those disciplines, particularly under the um, umbrella of a building information modeling platform, becomes very powerful to control schedule, to control quality, uh, help ensure outcomes. You know, commodities are expensive, but labor is very expensive. And so time on a construction site, if you can compress it, has massive impact to how how a budget works for any kind of project, sure. whether that's private or public. So that collaboration and that connectivity from the from the very beginning will help lead to more certain outcomes. Now, the things to you know keep in mind as an architect is not necessarily racing to a solution so fast. Sometimes great architecture takes a while. Just you need to work it, and that matters in the final act. The what what is left behind in the built environment going to be there a long time. So you do want to give it time and nurture it correctly so that what we're looking at for the next hundred years isn't squelched in the first two weeks of the collaborative act among a multidisciplinary team. But those those two mindsets working together can create something pretty powerful for everybody. And that, and that idea of value that we've been talking about can really shine through where there's a real positive imprint that's left behind. But then all of the um, the deal points, all of the stakeholder concerns, all of the practical concerns of the team can all be met at their highest level. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Rob, are you anticipating some consolidation in the industry happening now uh, after this cycle, kind of after this downturn ends and we're into the next cycle? You know, the consolidation in our industry is been going on for a while you know if you look at the last firm report from 2018 that the aia put together i mean it 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 shows a pretty interesting picture of what consolidation already looks like you know 70 roughly 75 percent of the firms in the country are nine people and less right so the other 25 percent 
control 85 percent of the revenue yeah. and and eighty five percent of the people. So and and what's fascinating is those firms in the top, you know, five or six percent, which are fifty and more, you know, control half the staff and more than half the revenue. So that consolidation has been underway for a long time. And um, I I don't expect that trend will reverse. I don't know that it is a rocket ship change to, you know, how how those three tiers of practice really change rapidly over the next 10 years, except that maybe some of those firms, you know, kind of, let's say in the middle, in that middle 15 to 20%, you know, do they, do they contract? It's possible. Do they come under the umbrella of larger organizations? That's also possible. So you may see a little more, you know, you may see some of the middle market mid-sized firms um, move one direction or another, but uh, consolidation has been in place for kind of a long time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's um, understandable, Rob. As we um, you know look at some of the you know lessons learned from the from the last couple of cycles, one of the things that I think good companies, great com- com- companies, do is you know use time like this to you know innovate and kind of you know. Uh, jumpstart some new services and, and opportunities. How how are you applying those you know lessons learned? And um, you know, are there things that you are looking forward to for the for the for, for the for the future? Well, um, yes, that's true. Um, I think what f- firms that endure and leave a lasting impression and make sense as a business over the long term, you know, solve a series of problems. The first among them is that they're, you know, they're clear about the mark that they're looking to leave on the world as architects and designers and, and the extent that they, they understand what that imprint looks like. It helps guide their decision-making about client acquisition, project design, uh, delivery, et cetera. That becomes increasingly paramount when things get dicey like they are now, because you really want to know who you are and why you're in it so that you're, position the best way that you can. I think that's one thing. The other thing that they do, and I mentioned this earlier, is that there's a diversity of marketplaces and revenue streams. And so, you know, there's never been a greater emphasis for firms that are looking to last to really explore how how many different places their mantra as architects and designers can can lend itself to how many, you know, what, what markets make sense? Where can you, where can you find something that needs to be fixed and innovate? That's really important just because of the different rhythms that the economic cycles are within multiple marketplaces. So that's for sure true. The other thing true is, uh, the other thing else that I I think about too, in innovation wise is the access to talent now is actually kind of a, a somewhat different equation. Um, at least here in the Bay area, for sure, you know, the recession, in 20, you know, 20, 2008, 2010, I mean, it wiped out a quarter of, of the profession. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. You know yeah. what I mean? And so there's sort of this, there's a, you know, kind of this been this big gaping hole of experience among people who now at this point might be, you know, 10, 15 years into their career, really experienced, really accomplished, under, understands how, the, how they work and where they fit in the world and how projects really work. You know, there's just fewer of them out there because of that. And so as we've all been living here and working here and sort of competing in the same talent pool, I think one of the things that this, you know, this kind of work from home distributed model of, of collaboration and practice starts to to make a possibility is, is like, 
the innovation of the kind and quality of staff that you get. Now, to a certain extent, this has happened for a while. There's certainly been outsourced firms for a long time and, you know, the internet is not new. So there have been ability for people to work at distances before, but it was never really looked at as a standard operating procedure for many. So now is a time to really comb a greater geography to find the best possible cultural fit and talent fits for your organization, which, you know, may help lever up what the quality and experience that your, that your staff can bring and offer, but also forging new territories into marketplaces where you're not currently physically positioned. So, I mean, I think that that's a part of innovation that, you know, firms, particularly those firms in the middle that may contract down to the small size or may get swallowed up by some of the bigger firms um, as, a, as, a, as a way to keep keep the lights on, uh, that that will happen to a certain extent if, if things continue down this path that they're on. Being able to be open-minded about where you find talent, where you find business will help sustain uh, firms that are more progressive in, in their thinking. And then also, you know, looking at where the shifts in capital are going to go to, you know, architects have business when there's discretionary capital to spend, whether that's for a private entity or a public entity. And so, you know, if you're being strategic as a, as a, as a business person, you're going to be starting to think, all right, well, if, if private equity and maybe to a certain extent debt were following one path, there's still money yeah. in private equity and debt. It's still it's still going to want to go somewhere. So where where are they likely to want to go based on current conditions? And so finding finding those paths will open up new possibilities as as an architect. Yeah. And so you know we're we're certainly mindful of that and understand where some of those things are heading and positioning ourselves in that direction, particularly in the areas of life science. There's no doubt that's that's a need that's prescient for our time now but for certainly continuing needs and and that and that's that's a that's a place also where you can make a difference and so you know we've been working hard over the last few years even even in spite of all that stuff that we're going through now to get ourselves in that position because there are projects that make a difference for all of us and they're also now uh, a place where people might want to be paying attention on the investment side as you can see and you know some of the articles that um, that you run in your publication too that this is something that matters to people from an investment standpoint yeah. so we're, we're paying attention there as well and then um, also the the paying attention to infrastructure type projects which if you think of housing and the need for housing as an infrastructure project you know there's a lot of architects that are needed to help you know, roll up their sleeves and pitch in and help figure out ways to solve that problem. And so that's also an area of emphasis that even in this time will have an ongoing concern. Uh, you know, there, there are plenty of places to look for new lines of business and new types of business to, to sustain yourself. So it's definitely something that's on my mind and our mind at the firm, for sure. Yeah. I tried really hard not to talk about COVID and the pandemic. So as as we close our conversation, I'll ask one question, which is, you know, things to be hopeful about as you kind of look at uh, look at the landscape of the industry. I think that the biggest thing to be hopeful about is, is that this has given everybody, whether they really wanted it or not, a, a, f- a forced slowdown in some ways. The bulk of my projects over the last 10 years have been in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, we build all over the Bay Area, but I've spent so much time driving back and forth between, you know, the East Bay and, and the South Bay. And before I got an electric vehicle, I was always stuck in the middle lane. And when you're driving that slow all the time, you see the 
stress on people's yeah. face. And so, you know, life, we've all been able to slow down and take stock of, of sort of where we're at and how fast we're moving. And I think that's going to create, in my mind, a, a ray of hope about this, the pace with which we may restart the engines of, of commerce, which I think will be helpful for everybody and more sustainable for everybody. We don't need a super steep growth curve, a nice, you know, a nice sort of gent gentle slope would be great for everybody. Keep costs in line, keep stress down, just contribute to greater levels of happiness for more people, for sure. So I think that's something that I think is hopeful for me that will come out of this. And and the other thing I would say is, is that if the conversations I'm having with clients and potential clients are, are any indication, there's still interest, there's still activity. People still see a positive future on the investment and development side. Yeah, um, 100%. Yep. You know, and, and, and so it's easy in the press to look at things in, you know, maybe a little more doom and gloom fashion. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's not some of that out there because that, that's certainly true. But in the commercial real estate fear, the, the engines are still running. People still are interested. And, and that's on private equity side that's on the debt side that's certainly on the project sponsor side so you know I, I think that i'm hopeful just because of the the people that i'm connected with and connected to um they see a, a future that's still worth engaging in as opposed to saying well i've already made a mark i can just take it to your vacation and then come back and no no one's doing no one no one in my realm is saying that and I would suspect many other architects in my position in the, in the realms that they're in that are similar are probably feeling the same thing too. So, you know, I, I think that uh, there's there's still lots of reasons in the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley to understand that this has been a region and part of the world that is, you know, is very interested in innovation. And I think now innovation can happen in other ways now, in addition to the sort of tech space that we've sort of seen and known. And it's hard to imagine that just coming to a complete shutdown and grinding halt. People here want to want to move things forward. And, and as long as that's the case, um, I think you're going to want to see project sponsors, investment and development want to continue to do projects. And as an architect, that's, you know, that's a great that's a great sign for me. Great, great. Rob, thank you for your time. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. 